The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host... Sarah Morris. Hello, it's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here. Welcome to this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. This is just a note to say that if you are hearing this, then you are not currently part of my membership programme and will only be hearing the first part of each show. In order to access full episodes of the Tudor History and Travel Show, you will need to become a member of my membership site, the ultimate guide to exploring Tudor England via the link in the description associated with this podcast. Now, the subject of today's episode is Sheffield Manor Lodge, which I suspect many of you out there will not yet have visited. But I hope to convince you it is well worth putting it on your itinerary because it is a place of enormous historical importance connected as it is with one of the greatest Tudor families of the age and their role in guarding Mary, Queen of Scots, during her imprisonment in England. It's a place that you could perfectly combine in a weekend away to the area, visiting the likes, for example, of Hardwick Hall and Haddon Hall. And if you were to visit Sheffield Manor Lodge, I urge you, before I forget to say it, to head into the centre of Sheffield to go and visit the cathedral. Although it doesn't look like it's a particularly old building, there is the most fantastic chapel called the Shrewsbury Chapel, which houses the tombs of the 4th and the 6th Earl. The latter, of course, is one of the key protagonists in our story today. It is a wonderful chapel and the tombs have been quite recently restored and they are absolutely gorgeous, well worth a visit. But before we talk about our history today and the subject of our podcast, I actually want to make a little announcement because today, the day in which I am launching this episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show, also sees the launch of a very exciting adventure which I have been working away on behind the scenes along with fellow blogger, historian and author Adam Pennington, who some of you may know from Instagram and his blog as The Tudor Chest. As you can imagine, as The Tudor Travel Guide, with my spotlight being on visiting Tudor places, I often get asked about whether I do tours. Well, it is true to say that one of my great loves and passions is taking people around heritage locations here in the UK. I just love doing that. I love seeing people's faces light up and telling them the stories of the places in which we are visiting. All of the research that I've done comes together in that moment. And it's such a thrill for me to share those stories with people 
on location, where of course it's only time and not space that separates us from the past. So yes, as I've just mentioned in the background, I've been working away with Adam on creating a brand new tour company. And today is the day that that venture goes live. So we now have, ladies and gentlemen, Simply Tudor Tours, created by Tudor history lovers for Tudor history lovers. And we are celebrating that with the launch of our inaugural flagship tour, The Rise and Fall of Anne Boleyn. Yes, who else? Of course, you know that she is my heroine of Tudor history and I know how many people love her. And we will be running a week's tour from the 1st to the 7th of September 2024 that will take us to visit six pivotal locations which still stand as witness to some of the most historic events associated with Anne's glittering rise to the pinnacle of Tudor society through to her devastating downfall. Alongside me and Adam, I'm also thrilled and excited to be able to say that we will be joined by our historian in residence for this tour, my co-author from the In the Footsteps days, Natalie Gruniger. And alongside Natalie, who of course has only very recently published her book on the final year of Anne Boleyn, and so it's perfectly placed to join us on the tour. We are going to be joined by some guest experts on location at places such as Hampton Court, the Tower of London and Hever Castle. So at Hampton Court, we'll be joined by the um, head curator of historic buildings, Dan Jackson, who is going to be taking us off the usual tourist trail and behind the scenes to see some very special and interesting places at the palace. Alfred Hawkins, who is one of the assistant curators at Historical Palaces, will be joining us for a similar um, personal guided tour of the Tower of London, details to be confirmed. And then at Hever, we have the delightful Kate McCaffrey, who will be again giving us a personal guided tour. You'll be hearing talks from both myself, Adam and Natalie along the way that will recount the story of the rise and fall of Anne Boleyn. I'm not content with just seeing these fabulous Tudor locations. We want to give you a taste of what it was like to be a Tudor. And so at Penshurst Place, you'll be able to join me either watching or perhaps even learning for yourself some Tudor dancing accompanied by live musicians. And then Brigitta Webster from TudorExperience.com will be talking to us about Tudor food and will be bringing along some examples of Tudor fare that you're going to to be able to taste for yourself. And I know the subject of Tudor food is an extremely popular one. And I have tasted, I can tell you, a lot of Brigitte's cooking and it is delicious. And that very evening, if that wasn't enough, we'll be dining in style at the Great Hall in Hever because we'll be staying at the Astor Wing for a couple of nights during the course of the week. And who will be presiding? But Henry VIII himself. Again, we'll be accompanied as we dine by gorgeous live Tudor music. Oh my goodness, it's going to be amazing. A real experience of a lifetime and I do hope that you'll be able to join us. Now today, booking opens for the VIP list. So 
if you have previously expressed your interest in joining me on tour, then you will, at some point during the course of the 7th of October, the day of our launch, be receiving an email inviting you to uh, check out all the details on our newly launched website, which is simplytudortours.com. And you will have first dibs at booking your place with general booking opening to the wider world one week later. So even if you aren't on that list, do keep an eye out. I will be sending a further email to the rest of the world and we'll be posting across social media, letting people know when general booking is open. But as I say, in the meantime, if you want to check out all the details of our new venture and of this particular tour, the rise and fall of Amberlynn, just head on over to www.simplytudortours.com and you can email us directly at hello at simplytudortours.com if you want to make contact with us or you have any questions about the tour. Okay, well, I think that's all on the tour. I hope you're as excited as I am. And I do hope to see some of you in person on the road. It is such a delight to do so. So our attention now must turn to the focus of today's episode, which, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, is Sheffield Manor Lodge. Now, this was once a grand and stately country seat of the Earls of Shrewsbury, but is perhaps more known than anything else these days as being one of the places of imprisonment of Mary Queen of Scots during her sojourn in England. Of course, it wasn't just George Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury, who was ensnared in looking after Mary for some 15 years or so, but his wife, of course, was Bessa Pardwick, and their relationship was also absolutely fascinating. Now, I have written a blog about Sheffield Manor Lodge and I will put a link in the description associated with this podcast if you want to check that out. There will also be a show notes page, which again, a link will be in the description alongside this podcast. So you can check all that out, see some images and maybe read some more of the detail if reading is your thing. But in the meantime, we have an expert guide on site today to take us through the history of Sheffield Manor Lodge and of Mary's stay there. Our guest is David Templeman, who has written a book on this very subject, probably one of the most definitive books associated with Mary's time at Sheffield Manor Lodge and in the area. And I will be once again putting a description to that book in the description associated with the podcast. Okay, I think I've said enough. It is time now to go time travelling, zipping through time 500 years in the past, and let us land at Sheffield Manor Lodge, as I said, the grand country seat of the Earls of Shrewsbury. Welcome, dear listeners. Ah, now this month you find me at Sheffield Manor Lodge in the heart of Sheffield. And gosh, we're so lucky today because the weather has been atrocious, but the sun has come out for us and I'm, I'm feeling even a little bit hot here with my heavy coat and scarf on. But um, I'm glad, in fact, that we have some sunshine because we are meeting a very special guest today who is going to be our guide. This man 
knows everything there is to know about our location today and of course a couple of the important Tudor visitors who were very much associated with it Cardinal Wolsey and Mary Queen of Scots as we shall be hearing shortly so without further ado I'd just like to say hello David Templeman hello welcome to the show Hello, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, well, I'm, I'm humbled to be back here. <laughs> we met at the end of last year when I came here, visited Sheffield Manor Lodge. We came on one of your tours and I was like, I really would love David to join us on the Tudor History and Travel Show because there will be so many people who perhaps even not that aware of Sheffield mm. Manor Lodge. And, and that's a shame because we, it, it deserves mm. to be on mm. anybody's Tudor itinerary, doesn't it? For good reason. Well, yes. Um, it, the, the first thing is, this site is a very important piece of both English and European history. And it needs to get not local recognition, which is still very much, um, very much uh, in the shortfall, but it needs to be, of course, taken across the whole national mm, part. Absolutely. Because there were so many things happened there, you know, uh, with Wolsey and, and Mary Queen and Scots, that it's not just an ordinary manor house anymore. Mm. This has got built to palace standards to take Mary and got loads which we'll be going through as, as we walk through. Yeah, we will. So we'll be doing that shortly, but a couple of things I'd really like to cover off at the beginning. First of all, um, I said you know just about everything there is to know about this place. <laughs> That's because you've written about Mary's time here in particular. Can you talk to us a little bit about the book that you have written and the impact that it's had? Yeah, well, I'm technically now Elizabethan historian. I just concentrate solely on the Elizabethan period. So that means I can specialise in that area not Tudor on, on, on mass, just on the Elizabethan part. Um, and it all came about by coming up here as a guide in 2004, when uh, this site went on to BBC Restoration Series, which was the one with Griff Rees-Jones. I remember it well. Yes, I think there were three series altogether. We were on series two. And what people didn't realise, we actually beat three, over 300 applicants to get to those final three which was an achievement in its own um, right. We got the recognition of that we, we were on the television, mm. which brought loads and, well, hundreds and hundreds of visitors in, I'd say thousands, really. And uh, then we could put in a bid to Heritage Lottery Fund, HLF, I'll show there, for, what, 1.5 million we put in. We'd have, We'd had two previous bids turned down, but not the third one, because they gave us a sum of money now to appoint proper architects and, and all the rigmarole you need, and then they tune into our popularity, and uh, we, got, we got the money. We yeah. got one up to 1.4 million, I think, okay. which built the visitor centre, mm -hmm. which restored the turret house at that time. A lot of landscaping. And then we applied for two tranches of half a million since we got those rolls. So it's well over two and a half million spent. Fantastic. So that's basically the background uh, to the site that uh, well, my, my involvement was coming in as a guide. And uh, during those years, questions used to be fired at me. What, what did Mary do? Where was she kept? And, and a lot of the answers weren't in the biographies. Sheffield gets three or four mentions in a biography. She spent 14 years of her life here. Mm. You know, a third of her life was spent here in Sheffield between the castle and Manor Lodge. And he gets three or four mentions. <laughs> and I thought, 
something got to be written or done about this. And although it was at the back of my mind, I pieced together all the different formulations, extras, you know, what I'd found, archives. I got access to Chatsworth archives, Sheffield archives, got new stuff. And over the years, and then 2016, I put pen to paper and I thought, it's got to be written. And so the name of the book <clears throat> is for people who want to uh, catch up with that? Yeah, it's Mary Queen of Scots, the Captive Queen in England, 1568 to 87. Marvelous. Covering the full 19 years, though, not just the Sheffield part, but... Now, Sheffield gets 124 pages. <laughs> From three or four mentions in a normal biography, he gets 124 pages. Well, that's going to really help people mm. to understand the context. And, of course, we take it one stage further. The chief examiner now has taken it on board. Uh, 18 months ago, he wrote to me saying, I've read your book. This is a piece of history I knew nothing about. And the students across Great Britain need to know it. Uh, so can I have your permission to include it in the syllabus for the next three years? Yes, very good. OK, now, <clears throat> the only other, the second thing I just wanted to quickly ask you about is, is visit, how do people visit here? Uh, we're going to be talking about the history in a minute. Hopefully that will really get people interested in coming along to visit to, to make sure this information gets reaches as many people as possible. Can you tell us how uh, to find out about you and, and when are you open? Yeah, we open uh, principally the first Sunday in April and right through to the last Sunday in September. So we don't open October, you know, we, uh, we don't open October, so it's last, last Sunday in September. Okay. And uh, it's 10 till 4, and we have three guided tours during that time. I don't know the exact times because they've altered the start time now, but uh, you will be able to find it on the website for Sheffield Manor Lodge. Uh, so there are three guided tours. And we also have three, uh, six mini events during the year. The dates aren't fixed in stone at the moment, uh, which will be like a Tudor day, a music day, a dance day, and things like that, where we've got all different things going off. So there'll be six mini events. Uh, they're just in the planning stage at the moment. Some have been booked, some haven't, but uh, they will appear on the, on the Sheffield Manor Lodge website. So Today, the ruins, because it's very much is the ruins of Sheffield Manor Lodge, are uh, surrounded by suburbia of Sheffield. And yet, one of the things that strikes me when I come here is how high up we are. Mm, and mm. I have seen reconstructions of Sheffield Manor Lodge, and perhaps we'll be able to include one of those in the show notes, which will accompany this um, podcast. Um, but it, it's clear that it was situated quite high up mm. and had a fantastic view. Yeah, incredible. Can you talk about the geography mm. and the topography? Mm to give people an idea of what it looked like in the past. Yeah, well, the geographical thing is the most important part, why it was chosen, because where we're standing now, we'd be in the middle of the great Sheffield Deer Park. I mean, the, this Deer Park was one of the largest in the country. It was eight miles in circumference, walled and fenced, wow. that's like an eight-foot-high wall around that, uh, stop the deer jumping out. Um, a normal deer park would be, an average sized deer park would be one mile in circumference. And there were hundreds of them. There were over 2,000 of them by 1,400. Um, but Sheffield Deer Park was, eight, was quadruple the size of a large deer park. A large deer park would be two miles. This was eight miles. Wow. And what better place to put Sheffield Manor Lodge? Right in the middle of it, but on the highest hill. 
so you've got a 360 degree panoramic view. Take all the modern infrastructure away mm. and you would look straight out over to the Peak District, uh, southwest. Uh, Sheffield would nestle in the bottom. Mm. I mean, we can see like Pontefract Killingly Towers here, what, 40 miles away easily. Yeah, I can. Uh, at ground level. But remember in, in those days, in the Tudor time, they would use raised levels. They would be on the top floor of the Long Gallery. They would be on top of the turret house, which would be much higher than we're standing at ground level. Mm. So they would get even better views. Mm. And that was the great attraction, you know, to go onto the raised levels. You always had your Long Gallery on the, like if you go to Hardware Hall, you'll see it on the top. You'll see them always on the top floor. Mm. Uh, but of course, the turret house is uh, what we call a stand tower, specifically built with a flat roof for them to engage with whatever views yeah. they could see. Yeah. And they would be spectacular views. And so let us talk about the owners of Sheffield Manor Lodge, if right. we could. Could you tell us about who built this fabulous palace-like <laughs> complex? Yeah, well, it's gone through a lot of different phases, but the, the two main phases were the fourth Earl of Shrewsbury in the early 16th century, that's the 1500s, and, of course, uh, the sixth Earl of Shrewsbury. Uh, so we've got two distinct phases here. Uh, one is the Henry VIII's uh, era, and the other one, of course, is Elizabeth I era. Henry VIII, we had Cardinal Woolsey here, who was kept here as a, a, just like Mary Queen of Scots, in custody, not as long. No. 18 days is against <laughs> 14 years is quite a different matter. But uh, it, it's, I will relate that story in a short while. But uh, the old part contained the long gallery, this was the first long gallery outside London. This is the same year. Is it Hamp really? That's amazing. Same year as Hampton Court. This mm. is 1516. Mm. Hampton Court was built in 1516. It's the same, same year. Mm. Mm. So, although it's not a very long, long gallery, um, it was the precursor to the great ones to come. They got hard recorded. They seem to go on forever. They're so long. But they were built much later. Mm -hmm but they styled themselves on the early ones and this, they couldn't get much earlier than this one. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe the fourth Earl? Who was he? What was his position at court? Well, How did he become so wealthy to have such a huge house and park? Well, the fourth Earl, well, all the Earls of Shrewsbury, you know, have had a wonderful connection with um, the monarchy. I mean, the first Earl was, of course, revered by Shakespeare uh, in Henry VI, part one. He was the one who led the English forces against the French in the Hundred Year War. See. Now, he's the first one to reside in Sheffield with the Shrewsbury's. And uh, he was a brilliant warrior. He, uh, he fought over 50 battles leading from the front. And he was over 70 years old charging into battle on his last one. <laughs> and was shot to pieces, I'm afraid, by the French. They had, they, we'd won the battles at Agincourt and Cressy with, with yeah, the longbow, mm. but they used artillery for the first time mm. in 1453 at Castillon. And uh, of course, the Hallamshire Regiment, which is part of Sheffield, they were just blown to pieces. Mm. He, he, lost, he lost his life and lost one of his sons as well. So when we get to the fourth hill, the fourth hill was, you know, really responsible for saving Henry VIII's life. Because the Pilgrimage of Grace, which was the great thing which uh, challenged Henry VIII, mm. uh, was actually stopped by the fourth Earl of Shrewsbury. Uh, he was the one who was the 
the main main driver in stopping that. Because maybe we should just mention, you know, Sheffield is towards the north of England, so that's the north came, the north, you know, the, the pilgrimage yes. arose in Lincolnshire and the North Lincolnshire, Yorkshire, so yeah, yeah. he was standing yeah. physically, wasn't he, between that and London, yes, so perfect and, and he's the one who stopped them. Yeah. yeah, and of course Henry VIII, uh, you know, really revered him after that. Yeah. So they, they had a very okay. high standing at court in the yeah. Shrewsbury. Yeah. And the fifth earl, although he's not well, well documented, again he, he apparently he was still carried on that high status with 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 the court with the court, mm -hmm. and then it just moved straight into the sixth earl, who then became a, a wealthy tycoon. Uh, you would call him a modern-day tycoon in our terminology because he had, he had income streams coming in from all over the place. <laughs> Mining, farming, shipping, you name it, he got, <laughs> he got money coming in from all over. Uh, and uh, one of the richest men in the country. actually what's left just what what we're seeing around us at the moment and then maybe we can talk about what's standing yeah. right next to us the long gallery well it, it, it is a tragic outlook because a lot of this should have been saved by the duke of norfolk i mean we we, we we don't hold anything back against an absentee landlord which was the duke of norfolk i mean the present one he will apologize for his ancestors he can't do anything about it now but they had great great opportunities of saving the long gallery and the south range which is the accommodation block in the distance mm -hmm. um and it's just purely they it was for money they wanted to get down to the mining and the, these were all coal seams below and below where we're standing yeah below we're, we're standing they, they put a put a pit head uh, just behind where I'm standing, mm. and, uh, and was, this, was in the trees here. And was this in the Victor Victorian this is period? A, uh, yeah, early 19th century. Right. Uh, but it didn't last 100 years. By 1890, it finished. So it lasted 100 years, but the Duke of Norfolk allowed the mining village to go on the site. Not at the side of this, this historical site. Oh no, you can put your cottage and do what you want, live in it, 
and so here where we're looking now there are uh, abutments coming out from the long gallery mm. uh, with more modern brick and these mm. are the remains of the miners cottages I see. they butted them up to the long gallery yeah. use the long gallery as a as a backdrop right and I then see. all the holes we're looking at are caused by by you know the spoliation from from the miners so when was the last time that sheffield manor lodge was in a reasonable state of repair uh, well, it would be when the Shrewsbury's uh, finished in 1616. Right. From then onwards, it was just it left to rot. Just started to decline. Yeah, nobody lived in it anymore. Uh, oh, oh, because they moved to, I guess, Chatsworth, maybe? Is that right? Well, is, that, is that the family, the Cavendish family, moving to Chatsworth and well, facing themselves? Well, Bess had there? already moved. She'd gone back to Chatsworth and then to Hardwick. Um, but once the Shrewsbury's died out, um, the Duke of Norfolk took over I through see. marriage. Ah, right. But he lived at Arundel. Yes, of course. So, and uh, yes. this wasn't nothing to Way him. up north, not Nothing important. to him, but they gave him all these great plans of money, money, money all the time, and that right. was it. Just right. let it rot in the ground, you know. So today we're, we're standing in, in, at the moment, we're standing in what would have been the inner courtyard, is that yes, right? Yes, uh, we're standing just at the edge of the... Garden. This was a, this was definitely a garden of some kind, and what we've done our own interpretation now. We've put a lavender labyrinth, a lavender maze in, and we've put the old roses back from Tudor times, and we've put the old fruit trees from the Tudor times. You know, these are pear mm. trees and that, and then that would have led up to what we call a cross wing. This was a a two-story dissection between the garden and the courtyard itself. That would be a courtyard over where the, uh, the main lodgings are. I see, I see, I see. Uh, so yeah, for, this was to take Mary, Queen of Scots, of course. I, I'm not saying she actually lived here, but it was just that she bought I her see. own household. They needed extra accommodation. So just, I mean, again, I'll hopefully include some images of this, dear listeners, so you'll get more of an idea. So we've got the sort of, the gatehouse of which the turret still exists. We've got an outer courtyard. A yeah. cross range that then comes through to an inner courtyard, yep. which in itself is divided into lodgings on one side and a garden on the other side. Yeah. Is, that, is that pretty much what we've uh, got here? Yeah, that's, that's about right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Now, I'd really would like to talk about this long gallery that we're standing next to, because there is one wall of the long gallery mm. that's, that was here from the Tudor period. Yeah, so... We are looking at the display board. This was it totally intact in 1790. Right. But we are looking from the other side, looking that Inwards. way, in, you know, from that way. We are inside the house now. Yes. That is taken from outside the house. Yeah. So inside the house would be a wooden, then it becomes wood. So you've got a stone face here, front for protection, obviously. And then it would have the wooden part, which is here. Ah, yes. Uh, there's the wooden part. So we've got now, a picture on the board and we can see this timber-framed wood, yeah, wooden building that's the, almost fallen in. This is interesting because this is 1901. This is early 20th century. Now, there isn't one beam missing from here. No, it's complete. The roof is complete. So David's pointing to the roof. is yeah. in there. Mm. Every, all the inner, in, well, the inner workings of the Long Gallery are there. All it needed at this stage was that black and white shuttering you see around the houses, just as protection. That's yes. all it needed, don't it? But no, come up and help yourself. 
It's where you used to go to the cutler's shops and that. Take the stone away, take the wood away, take what you want away, and then take it back down to Sheffield. And that's why we've just got the outer stone-facing yeah. wall. Yeah. But you can clearly see there are some lovely architectural features that have survived, like a couple of uh, windows yes, there. Yes, uh, the important thing are the windows. We have actually got three windows. At the, the third window is just see the mullion. Uh, the outer edge yes. of the window with the red brick finishes there. Yes. That's the third window. And all that, they would have these wonderful views going straight across the peak. So you can imagine Bess of Hardwick and Mary Queen of Scots sat in the window recesses there, because they used those a lot, doing their embroidery, reading the book and looking out onto those beautiful vistas of oh, the, of the peak district in the distance. One of the people, the person I personally most associate with that long gallery, of course, is the gentleman that you mentioned earlier, and that's Cardinal Wolsey. Oh, Cardinal Wolsey, yeah. Who, who of course, was brought to Sheffield Manor Lodge. Yeah. Perhaps you could tell us the story, and maybe we can just explore a little bit more of this gallery range in relation to that story. Yeah, well, Cardinal Wolsey, of course, was right-hand man to Henry VIII, probably the most important man in England. He had great powers and probably the richest man in the country. I mean, he's the one who built Hampton Court, remember? Yes. He gave it to Henry VIII, but he's the one who built it. So, but he fell out big style with uh, Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn was his arch enemy. These two were daggers drawn. And where Anne Boleyn took advantage of his downfall was when he was given the onerous task of going to the Pope to get permission for Anne Boleyn to marry Henry VIII. He had got no chance at that time. The, the Pope was surrounded by Spanish troops at that time. He, were, he couldn't give in because the Spanish would have just massacred him for doing it. So, you know, he, and he came back and, and, and of course Anne Boleyn then fed all these lines to Henry VIII. It's Wolsey's fault, he should have done this, he should have done that. And Henry VIII believed her and banished him from court. And that was it, basically the end of his career. Mm. So he went then to reside at his bishopric in York. And that should have been the end of Wolsey's, you know, uh, political mm. career. But for some unknown reason, a lot of historians can never get their head around this, he got involved with treasonable correspondence with France over topping Henry VIII. And some historians think that Anne Boleyn forged his signature there was no reason why he should be involved with this at all. But, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on that at all. But uh, anyhow, it was arrested for high treason mm. and brought from York uh, to Sheffield Manor Lodge. Mm. And this was only for an interim period, for 18 days, because they were waiting then for William Kingston, a constable, and 24 guards to fetch him. Now, during that time, we have got the diary of uh, the stay of Wolsey from his manservant, George Cavendish. And he relates every little detail right down to the part where he, take, he gets taken seriously ill here. And uh, we've had um, GPs look at it and they're pretty certain it looks like he caught dysentery here. Um, you know, all the you know, ramifications of going to the toilet and all this stuff. Uh, so it was in no fit state to go back to London. You know, it was, it was a serious illness in mm. those days. And mm. um, of course, yeah, it was face up to riding 160 miles on horseback, but it wasn't horseback. He travelled everything by mule. He had a mule, a large donkey. <laughs> he travelled everywhere by mule. So 
But he was so insistent, you know, Woolsey, because he said, look, I've been framed. I want to fight my case down there. The only way I can do it is fight my case down in London. But they told him, well, you know, if it's state to trial, I'll, I'll risk it. But once he got on, onto the mule, he said his farewell gestures to the uh, fourth earl, thank you very much for your hospitality, but I'm dying here now. I won't get back to London alive. I'm going to try, but I don't think I'll make it. And he didn't, he only got to Leicester two or three days later and died there. Yeah, absolutely. But the tragic thing is, of course, they've lost his grave there. I know. <laughs> oh, no. I know. Whereas that... we always say, <laughs> if you'd have insisted, which you should have done, to stay here, we would have buried him in the Shrewsbury Chapel, in yes. Sheffield Cathedral, which is still there. And it's a fine chapel indeed. Uh, very fine, as you will know. I do know. I visited last year and I do encourage anybody listening, if you do come to Sheffield, make mm. sure you go to the cathedral, to the Shrewsbury Chapel, because there are monuments to the 4th and the 6th hill, and yes. they are beautiful. And they're the two principles from Analogy. Uh, it's brilliant. It's One a built great, on the first part and the 6th hill built the second part. Great story. And we've got them both there. Can I just ask you, when you read Cavendish's account... Yeah. As you say, it's very detailed. Oh, very much. And he yeah. talks very much about the long gallery and yeah. how there's that yeah, sarsenic. Yeah, fair, fair gallery. Yes. Fair in Tudor times, remember, means grand, magnificent. Yes. Always remember that fair means that. Yes. You know. And and uh, the Earl had divided it, hadn't he, with some, I think it was sarsenet or sarsenet. Yes, that's um, sarsenet. Sarsenet. Yeah, it's a type of curtain <laughs> which went halfway down the long gallery. So it would have been... Either side of the window Don't, here. Yes. So we're looking up at a brick tin, very much Tudor window, very beautiful window. And David's pointing up to the first floor level. And we can actually, this is what I love about that account. And that's why I love coming here. Because you can you can put the two together mm. and stand there and you can imagine Woolsey in his half of the gallery. If you ever go on, uh, a really good reproduction of this is at Haddon Hall. If you go on to their, um, I think it's, if you go on to Google Images, mm. you can pick up the, their long galleries, either designed with Manolodge in mind or either before or after. Ah, and they have a beautiful and gallery. And it's a beautiful oak panel long gallery. Oh. And this would have been very similar. One of the best. I heartily recommend that too. Mm. It's one of my favourite mm. in the country. Because we know all the... We've, we've got the bill of sale, you see, when all the uh, artefacts were sold off in 1582. And um, they, it does mention the beautiful oak panel and it sold it for a, it? a very low amount oh how sad you know how sad it's really really sad when you see it all being sold off for like six months for three oh, yards of it or i wonder where it is now i know well that's right yes <laughs> yeah 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 it would have i see a lot a lot of the stone like at the castle and that they finished up in buildings but the buildings are long gone yeah, you know, the buildings yeah. have gone. And the other, there's another, I think there's another um, story from that account of Wolsey sitting on a coffer or a bench and the Earl of Shrewsbury yes. coming and sitting next to him. Yes, that's, that's wonderful, right. isn't it? Well, this is it. This is where the Sarsenet uh, was. They would meet up every afternoon, sit down and have a chat, because he treated him as a revered guest, yes. remember, not yes. as a prisoner, yeah. far from it. And they would sit on the bench and have a good chit chat. I can that. see them there now. Yeah. This is what I, this is what I love. Because it really felt really honoured. You see, the fourth hell. Yeah. You know, I know he was a prisoner, but but he greeted him at the gates, didn't yes, he? Yes. The, the stained glass window in Sheffield Cathedral. 
yes. of course, signifies all the entry of Woolsey into... And, of course, it was Sheffield Manor Lodge. It wasn't the castle. He only came to Sheffield Manor Lodge. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so, so it was met here. And, and again, I, I actually missed that stained glass window when I was in the cathedral, so I've got a good excuse to go back. Yeah, so you must go it. and have a look at it, yeah. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. we've been wandering along the length of the long gallery, and I've brought you into the turret at the end, because this is very much associated with Wolsey's story as well, yes, isn't it? Yes, this is it, yes. This is uh, what we call Wolsey's Tower, of course. It's our uh, interpretation of remembering them, because... You know, he gets very little recognition. Woolsey actually stayed here. Yeah, I know. You know, if it weren't for George Cavendish's wonderful account, yeah, we we would be totally lost without it. But uh, we have got that. But I mean, they, they make they they uh, you know the biographers Miss don't it. pick it up at all. I know. I remember don't coming. Pick it up. I remember coming across. Sheffield Manor Lodge, largely because I read of Cavendish's Life of Wolsey. Yes, that's and, the one. And yeah. I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Oh, so no. that's how I ended up coming oh, no. here through that. So may that's I just say to the listeners, actually, just so that you're aware of that book we're talking about, if you haven't read it, George Cavendish's Life of Wolsey, it's a contemporary account by somebody who was there, mm. standing silent witness to such immense events of historic importance. I cannot recommend you getting yourself a copy and they're not they're not hard to come by you can find them on the internet so um i do recommend you pick up a copy particularly if you're planning on coming here but i remember when we came last year david you pointed out the uh, <laughs> latrine there at the end yes <laughs> yeah we, the long guy's got ensuite toilet which is uh, you know what would you expect <laughs> when you've got high class dignitaries absolutely uh, We'll go. Shall we go and have a look? Yeah, at let's that? go and have a look at the latrine. And and you painted a very evocative image yes, when I was here. Yes, it's last worth year. explaining about the toilet situation. <laughs> uh, I I studied it in detail. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're the, right in the end. Just describe where we are and what we can see around us, if you could. Well, this David. is the end uh, of Wolsey's Tower. Is we've come out of his actual apartments. Uh, Sheffield Manor is a two-story building. So ground floor would be apartments, probably first floor, probably bedrooms, you know. Um, but there would be some sort of intersection between the, his main apartments and the toilet area. Now, the toilet area, were, again, would have been divided because what we're looking at is uh, the toilet seat. It's got two holes on it <laughs> yes. to sit on. There's no privacy in those days, remember. <laughs> there are no divisions. Uh, it could be threes, fours. I mean, Hampton Court's got one with 26 holes on it. Yeah, it's very 26, <laughs> where you just sit anywhere you want. <laughs> no privacy at all. But two's not so bad. But, of course, on the other side, what we're looking at now, there's a, just an open space. There is a divider. Now, the other toilet seat would be one floor higher yes. up there for the when you go upstairs to yes. that part. Everything then would come down to the... Now, everything slopes nicely to the outside, but, of course, there's no running water. Mm. And this is down now to the gong farmer and his two young boys to come around at night. They're called the night soil men between 9pm and 3am in the morning. They would open the manhole cover, dig out, the young boys would dig out all the excrement, load it onto the cart, replace it and put the straw back on top. So that's all it was, a sort of space was straw on top. Now, you never knew when these people were coming. It could be days, weeks, sometimes months. So the stench, the smell, 
that would be bad enough. But airborne viruses were everywhere. The Tudors were not into airborne viruses. They thought disease came from water. Keep away from well water, which was a good, you know, very sensible, because you didn't know the source of well water and used it for washing, stuff like that. But they didn't realise this is where they were getting ill from most of the time, was airborne viruses, because these things, they were everywhere. Mm. So living in inland manor houses, you know, w w was a dangerous, dangerous <laughs> place to be. The best place to, for these to be, of course, would be down at the castle, mm. where you've got a moat. Yeah. You always had lat latrines on the outside. Everything fell into the moat. You had a contaminated moat, but inside, you were clear. You were clear. And so we have to, uh, Paul Woolsey, getting ill over dinner with his uh, pears, eating his pears. Yes. And um, uh. that evening being afflicted, according to Cavendish, with mm. profuse diarrhoea. Yeah. He must have spent a little bit of time in this particular part yes, of the Yes, gallery. definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was uh, mind-boggling, isn't it? Oh, it is. It really is. Yeah. And like I say, it was, uh, it was in no fit state to set off, but... You can probably see his reasoning behind it. Yes, yes. He certainly knew, I think he knew it at the end was drawing near. Yeah, um, oh yeah, once he set off, he knew he weren't going to make it. So as you said, he stayed here 18 days. Yeah. And Kingston arrived with the men with the from guards, the tower. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and they, gave, they gave him a few days as if he'd recover. And, uh, and then they said, look, well, you've got to make a decision now. Mm. Uh, I think it was left to Woolsey, really, to decide right. at that time. So they realised how ill he was. Yeah, it's quite courageous, really. But, um, yeah, it's a sad thing, but people don't realise that Wolsey was taken seriously ill here and virtually died here. Absolutely. So this is a very important piece of Tudor history. And the fact that she's documented, I think that's what's so great. You've got the place, you've got mm. the documentation, mm. you've got the details of what he was eating when he fell ill, you know, yeah. and, and it's just brilliant. And the description of the uh, long gallery by Cavendish, exactly. of fair gallery. and Because yeah. this hadn't been built very long, you know. It was finished in 1525, and he came in 1530. Yeah. So brand new, almost brand yeah, new. Yeah, so it was only five years okay. after. Yeah, so, no, November 1530. So, as you said, Wolsey, of course, died at Leicester a few days later, and that's probably the end of the story of Wolsey here, but we commend people to come and investigate mm, the place. And have a look at the toilet seat. And the account, and have a look as we are. Not the, the original seat. toilet seat, no. but... In that style, anyhow. <laughs> but it, I think we perhaps should walk back out, back out towards the inner courtyard, and we can maybe talk about the second royal visitor. Yeah, oh yes. Mary, Queen of Scots, of course, who was here for much, much longer. <laughs> listening to the first part of this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. The remainder of this episode is only available to members of my membership site, The Ultimate Guide to Exploring Tudor England. To join the waitlist to become a member of The Ultimate Guide, click on the link in the description associated with this podcast. You will be added to the waiting list and I will email you just as soon as the doors to the membership next reopen. I'll see you there. Thank 
you for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling. Happy time travelling.